At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Visit BlueApron.com slash GabFest to get your first two meals free. That's BlueApron.com slash GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 21st, 2015, the Amabots and Amholes edition. I'm Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. John and David are still gone. I think they will be back next week. I pray, but it's okay because we have, for the second week running, guest star Jamel Bowie in um, Washington, D.C. Jamel Bowie, of course, uh, writer at Slate. Jamel, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You bailed me out when John bailed last night. I am extremely grateful. (laughs) My pleasure. And here in New Haven with me is Jack Hitt, one of my very favorite magazine writers in the world. Jack Hitt of This American Life. How else should I be introducing you right now? We can stop there. We'll stop there. (laughs) Jack Hitt of every other good magazine you've ever read in your life. On a good week or month, he will be in there. Um, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Well, great to be here. So on this week's GabFest, our topics will be the Republican Party and immigration. Has Donald Trump already cost the party the Latino vote? And we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders. Is his rise sustainable? And is he winning over Black Lives Matter? And our coda to this topic will be Hillary's uh, video, which has surfaced, talking to, wagging her finger at a Black Lives Matter activist. Um, So we'll be looking at Black Lives Matter and Democratic candidates a little more generally. And our third topic is Amazon, not Amazon, the magical deliverer of goods that so many of us frequent, but Amazon, the employer. There was an excellent New York Times story over the weekend that made Amazon sound like a really punishing place to work for white collar workers, as well as people who staff the warehouses. So is this the unpleasant future of um, white collar work in the digital economy? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, should you hate or love the month of August debate? All right. Before we start, a plug for our San Francisco show. Um, the Slate Gab Fest is coming to San Francisco on September 15th. The show is at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Norse Theater on Hayes Street. 
Get your tickets now. Many of you already have, but there seem to be a few more. You can go to slate.com slash live slash political gab fest, or there's a link for tickets on the city box office site. Um, I just Googled Slate Gab Fest San Francisco last night, and the ticket link came up really fast. So come. We're, we're excited for our show. All right. Immigration. Donald Trump announced an immigration plan this week. He wants to deport a lot of undocumented immigrants and their children who were born here legally. He said, quote, we have to keep the families together, but they have to go. So to sort of further that end, Trump wants to take away birthright citizenship from kids who are born in this country of parents who were not. He wants Mexico to pay for a wall along the border. He's going to pay for that by seizing remittance payments and increasing tariffs and fees at border crossings for legal crossings. He also wants to defund sanctuary cities where local law enforcement officials are not cooperating in federal deportations. We've already seen a couple other Republican candidates jump on board. Scott Walker, who is lagging, sagging in the polls. He's really losing out to Trump, in particular in Iowa. He agreed with the call for ending birthright citizenship. And Bobby Jindal went a step further on sanctuary cities, actually calling for the mayors in those cities to be arrested as accomplices when undocumented immigrants commit felonies. Okay, so (laughs) the Republicans Party has spent 10 years whipping itself for the way that it alienates Latino voters. And yet here they go again. At least that's what it looks like to me. Jack, what do you think? Like, is this... Have they already created a kind of lost cause for themselves with Latinos? And is it worth it in the primary season because this is a fair or at least smart way to court the conservative base? Well, look, I, you know, they tried to they tried to quell this issue two years ago, right? They had their immigration plan. Uh, it failed. You know, they, they, they were going to quietly essentially give in to Obama and just— and Have go, the citizenship. right. Exactly. Um, but the House wouldn't let them. You know, the, the sort of Tea Party anger wouldn't uh, stopped it. And, and so I think they were hoping to sort of just whistle past this graveyard for the whole next year. But of course, Trump won't let him do that. So not only is he um, invoking birthright citizenship, that's a, that's a you know, loaded phrase for uh, Latino voters, but he also s- slings around the phrase anchor baby, which is almost an ethnic slur at this point. Um, he, he was just going to do a quarrel with some ABC reporter, I think, last night about whether to use that word or not. But all of this, I think, I think they're going to pay. They're going to pay big. Not now, uh, because this is kind of like their inside fight. They're having this kind of semi-racist discussion about immigration now. But um, I, I will bet you when, when we untangle this in months to come, we'll find out that Chris Kobach the Secretary of State of Kansas, was somehow Trump's advisor on this. Whispering into Trump's exactly. ear. You so Kobach, him. remember, was the guy who advised Mitt Romney uh, last time to say the word self-deportation, right? Uh, he is the author of many of the sort of the cruelest of the Republican uh, ideas about, uh, about immigration. And I think terrifying children that in the middle of the night – you know, SWAT, you know, Darth Vader-like SWAT members are going to sweep into their house and drag them off, which is like one of those nightmares up there with being buried alive. I think that 
will come back to haunt them in the form of some amazing commercials uh, in, in a year from now. And, and Trump's face will be all over it. So, Jamel, do you think this is a total miscalculation or is it rational in the context of primary season because we're far enough away from the general election that it'll all come out in the wash by then or something? Well, I think it's a total miscalculation. Um you, you could imagine if this were a less heated and derogatory conversation. I think the the anchor baby comments really do not um, wear well with anyone uh, in the Latino community. You can imagine if those weren't happening, that if this were a bit quieter, if this were uh, more like the conversations in 2013 and 2014 around comprehensive immigration reform legislation, which were... Uh, you know, there are people in that in that conversation that were using pretty terrible rhetoric, but it was it was it was less apparent to the public. This is very public. Um, anyone who turns on uh, a television station is going to hear Donald Trump or whomever say really ugly things about Latino immigrants. And I guarantee you that among viewers of Univision and other Spanish language uh, news channels, they're getting this stuff nonstop. And so the problem for Republicans is. Uh, in most cases, what you say in the primary, so few people are actually paying attention that you can easily kind of pivot from it in a general election. But there are times, and, and Jack mentioned self-deportation, and this is one of them, or that was one of them, rather. There are times when you say something so terrible that it just becomes fodder for infinite ads and clips. And I think that we're, I think somewhere in all of this is one of those things. And come next year, whoever is the Republican nominee will be hit hit by it. I'll also say that I wouldn't be surprised to see Democrats really hit Republicans next year on the for, on the birthright citizen stuff. Um, for for my part, I find I find it all very like horribly ironic, right? If there's anything the Republican Party accomplished in its first fifty years as a party organization, it is birthright citizenship, right? <laughs> right. It is right. Sig- comes out of point. the Civil War, the Fourteenth yeah. Amendment, the signature accomplishment yes. of the right. Party of Lincoln. What's so, you know, again, it's ironic about it is that in the past you know, eight years, you could make a very plausible argument that the Republican Party has come to embrace the ideas of the ideological successors to to men like John C. Calhoun, to, to people who the Republican Party opposed mm-hmm. in its original formation. And so as this as the GOP is becoming this party of Calhoun in a lot of ways of of uh, anti-federal power, of you know, hyper-states' rights, of the idea that there might even be things the federal gov- uh, state government can nullify. It's you know launching an attack on its main accomplishment as the party of Lincoln. It's it's really um, if it didn't have any real-world consequences, it would be great um, <laughs> in terms of the drama of it. But it has real-world consequences, and thus makes me very sad. Before we go continue talking about birthright citizenship, I want to go back to Romney and self-deportation. So Romney said that in the primary season, and then he was the Republican candidate. Trump is not going to be the Republican candidate. Let's just, like, stick with the world of reality in which that doesn't happen. So Bush and Rubio are trying to whistle past the graveyard in the way that Jack laid out. They're trying to talk about strengthening the border, yes. But, well, I guess Rubio is no longer No, he's dragged them all into Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, Bush is still trying to hold the path. But Bush's Bush's little way out is so pathetic. He's like, we need need better in law enforcement. So Republicans hear that. That's weasel words to them. So he's he's kind of hurt himself, I think, on that. And the rest of them have all signed on to 
Trump's vehemence. So right? they're like flypaper. They're sticking to Trump. And thus, this moment of being incredibly virulently anti-immigrant is going to stick with whoever the candidate Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I mean, Jindal is like going to arrest mayors or something. I mean, they're yeah, all trying to insane. out Trump. Uh, Trump at this point, right? Right. So this is something actually John and David and I have been wondering about for a while is this question of like, when are candidates going to try to out-Trump Trump? And it seems like Walker in particular is moving mm-hmm. in that direction as he gets scared about Iowa. Does that sound right too, Jamel? It does. I-, I think Walker's problem is he's just not very good at this. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, <laughs> totally. Like, he would like to do that, and yet, right, I know. I, I You know, I, a couple months ago, I was like, you know, Walker's going to be the guy. He, he has he, – his resume is every bullet point for someone who could plausibly run kind of a dark horse insurgent uh, nomination campaign. But it's become very apparent that he's just – not very good at this sort of high stakes national politics. And an argument that I know some folks have made is that Walker's success in Wisconsin was never a function of his political skill, but always a function of the fact that he was running in very favorable electorates. And he could he could sort of grind out these razor thin victories uh, in an electorate which favored Republicans anyway. And I'm beginning to think that that's very true, that Walker isn't any particular political skill. He's just lucky. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I I think he's one failed rally away from Rick Santorum hood. Yeah. That's who I thought of when we were watching the debate a few weeks ago. I kept thinking, oh, my God, why does he remind me of Rick Santorum? There was something just like Because only his family is in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, doesn't this also get back to the essential challenge that Donald Trump poses to the field, which is that he does not sound like a politician. He sounds like... He's speaking the truth, saying what he really thinks. It may be lunatic, but it's it's off the cuff. It's him out there. And it really strikes me that it is just a dilemma when you have one candidate who's just not playing by the usual it, pablum w- w- rules. One thing we should say is that, of course, what he is describing is a problem that's not true. You mean the immigration I'm talking problem. about Trump. Yeah. Yes. He's describing a world that doesn't exist. The world it's, of immigrants so ruining the country chatter. when in fact they're strengthening the country. Exactly. Well, that and also, you know, look, immigration leveled off in about 2007. There's been no increase or decrease really in this. Actually, it's down a little it's bit. It's down a little from bit. From like 12 yes. to 11. Right, million, to 11. Right. That's right. And, you know, uh, you know, half of these quote, illegal immigrants or people whose paperwork is just out of order. So, you know, you look at it and the numbers get much smaller. And essentially, they've described this immense problem that doesn't exist and have, and have you know, proposed this ridiculous solution to, the, like I say, this problem that doesn't exist. Right. And then there's also the way in which immigrants, because they make the pie of the economy bigger, mm-hmm, actually right. bring as many economic benefits as they do take jobs, um, at least unless you're at like the very bottom of the service sector. Right. And that always seems to get somehow left out of the I think the other thing to say about Trump is that you know because he's kind of like the vocal id of the Republican Party and says all these ugly things and will use these words and, and doesn't pay for it the way Scott Walker or anybody else uh, would, is that his vocabulary and even his his personhood has entered pop culture in the sense that you see that piece where the most popular pinata now in, in Latino culture. That yeah. was like the great anecdote. It's <laughs> a New Trump York head, yeah. you know, with That's the so crazy funny. hair and everything. And so I'm telling you, in a year from now, either at Halloween or something like Trumpacabra is going to become this like pop culture image. And the Repub- that, that will be the self-deportation problem in a year from now. That is a great prediction that Halloween is going to be haunted by Donald Trump. I'll say, um, I'll say, we- go ahead, Jamal. I'll say real quick, just something I think a little more serious about Trump, because 
I, I do think it's tempting to kind of like dismiss him as a clown. And for as much as he is one, I think he's channeling something that's very real and very disturbing to me in American life. Um, and that has analogs in, in the past of the United States. This sort of deep discontent among downscale, you might call it, say mm-hmm. lower middle class, not necessarily working class, but kind of it overlaps white Americans who who conceive of their Americanness very much in terms of sort of this this ethnic nationalist view, right? That America America is for people who look a certain way, who are a certain way, who speak a certain way, and not for the other people. As if their families didn't also immigrate here, too, right. which is also like this poignancy to me every time I think about it that way. And, and Trump, I mean... It is genuinely worrisome to me that Trump is riling, like, is riling these people, you know, by the thousands into something that looks like a political movement. And maybe it will fizzle out, but maybe it won't. And, you know, I I think there's a non-trivial chance that Trump could become someone like an American, I don't know, Berlusconi or someone like an American Le Pen, right? Um, that means we elect him. I guess not Le Pen, but Berlusconi actually got elected. He actually <laughs> get elected. Um, I don't think he get elected, but sort of he would, he he could yeah. become the figurehead of like a, a genuine political movement. And it to me, it's kind of a scary political movement. You know, when when uh, you're getting wide cheers and applause for promising to deport a couple million kids, I don't think that's yeah. I don't think that's funny. Right. I mean, it's also a throwback. I'm going to wax historical for a minute because I learned about that this in writing um, a short piece for The Times Magazine this week about the term, quote, illegals. So if you go back to the first national quota law in 1924, when Congress passed that, they went back to the 1890 census in order to favor people of Northern European stock in setting those quotas. At that point, they left Mexicans and Latin Americans out of the quota system because there was enough pressure from agribusiness in California and Texas to keep the supply of cheap labor flowing. Um, But then, of course, it took all the way until the 60s before we got rid of these, you know, ethnically biased and racist ideas. We we were literally excluded Asia in 1924 from our immigrant quota system. We're supposed to be past all of that. And yet when you hear these calls that are, as we've been talking about, kind of racially coded or even not that coded and then thinking about ending birthright citizenship in a way which would mostly penalize people from Latin America. It just seems like there is this strain in American history and it is dark and it is anti-immigrant and we're seeing it rise again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, William F. Buckley's alleged great, you know, claim to fame was that he purged the John Birch Society from the formal Republican Party back in the early 60s and drove out a lot of the, you know, sort of anti-immigrant racist and anti-Semitic, you know, elements in the party. But, you know, you look at, um, and and Jamel, you know, you look at recently, you've got uh, 10 or 15 years ago, you have Pat Buchanan, who was essentially this Trump candidate. And go before that, and you had Perot, who also, you know, if you look at their, they, they all, they always warn America about these perils to essentially white middle-aged men, right? Which is the yellow peril is that China is going to take our jobs, the brown peril is that Mexico is going to send us criminals, the black peril is that you know the welfare rolls are going to surge, and and now we have the rainbow peril, which is that you know the gays are going to corrupt our children or something. But you know Trump. And Buchanan and even Perot all hit some variation of those notes. And to me, uh, Jamel, I want to see whether the Republican Party will give Donald Trump 
a speech in 2016. You mean at the, convention. What, at the convention? In the convention. That's a great task. That's the measure yeah. for me. Because they, yeah. they refused to let Buchanan talk, right? Remember, he was outside the auditorium. Right, so because they were trying to exile him. They were afraid of exactly what Jamel's talking about, which is, yeah, that this is, this is riling people up in this really terrible way. Um, and the formal party tried to keep that guy out. And it was easier to do with Buchanan. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it with Trump. That's a great um, thing to watch. All right, we're going to wrap up the discussion about the first topic there. Before we move on to the second topic, the GabFest is sponsored this week by Blue Apron, the new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. These are farm-fresh ingredients, they're perfectly portioned, and they come with an easy-to-follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. It's like cooking for dummies, but cooking really well. Um, and here's an example of a meal you could cook with Blue Apron. Smoky shrimp and creamy cheddar grits with corn, zucchini, and cherry tomatoes. I picked that one out because that is something the Jack Hit would totally cook. I don't know about you, Jamel. Would you cook that too? I probably would cook that, yes. Yeah, I see that in your repertoire. It is not in my repertoire, um, but I would eat it if either of you cooked it, even though I usually don't eat shellfish. I would make an exception if I got to eat it. And the ingredients <laughs> should obviously come from Blue Apron when you cook that meal for me, as I am sure you are now both planning to. So <laughs> um, discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. All right, on to our second topic. Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Black Lives Matter. I guess I've created kind of a smorgasbord topic. Let's start with Sanders. So many GabFest listeners have written in to us to complain that we are not taking Bernie Sanders seriously enough. We are discounting him. We do not see his rise to ascendance in the way it is going to continue as he draws these huge crowds, he's not a flash in the pan. I just don't buy it. Jack, do you buy it? That he's a flash in the pan? Yeah. No, no. He's he's the Democrats' Trump, which is to say he is giving voice to all of the issues that, that Hillary, for certain reasons, feels boxed in and can't say out loud, right? So, I mean, probably the most daring thing he keeps saying is he keeps going after Wall Street, you know, uh, who is the funder of most of the Democrats and all of the Republican Party. So Bernie alone is out there critiquing that and, and other things. So no, I, th- I think, uh, you know, there's a really good piece in Slate this week by uh, Jamel, actually. Wait, Jamel? <laughs> Jamel, <laughs> Which, I mean, which, uh, you know, which I will summarize it for, for you, Jamel. Um, you know, it says that Sanders is the right sort of portal for, for you know, new ideas to come into the party because that's sort of the role he's playing. Um, and and, and y- if you're going to look at it from a populist perspective, Sanders is doing great on that level, whereas Trump is destroying the party he's, uh, you know, joining. But Sanders has managed to sort of create a vocabulary that is mainstreaming a lot of ideas that formally were not allowed inside the party. I think the struggle about Black Lives Matter is just another one of these issues where, you know, the activists with Black Lives Matter, Sanders and Hillary are all trying to figure out what this vocabulary is, how we bring this issue into the party and then make it a uh, what Hillary's saying I think is I want to make this into an issue that will help us win mm-hmm. right and and lead to practical uh, results. Po- political results and that struggle it's great we're having it now because it's 
15 months away from the uh, election. So, uh, Jamal, if I go back to your uh, writing from July, I find a piece in which you compared Bernie Sanders to Ron Paul. Right. Does that fit with what Jack is saying here, that this is actually like a good debate for the Democrats to have as opposed to a destructive one that will pull Hillary too far to the left? Do we have to worry about that? I don't think you have to worry about that because I'll disagree with Jack and say I don't see Sanders as an analog to Trump just because Trump is sort of out, really outside the Republican Party structure. That's part of what makes him so difficult to get rid of. He he has no formal connection to the Republican Party outside of the fact that he says, you know, he's a Republican. And that, that gives him some protection. Sanders is a part of the Democratic Party. He is a Democratic lawmaker. Or he was an independent lawmaker. But for all intents and purposes, he's a Democratic lawmaker. He's a senator. And, and I'd also, I think there's like a real substantive difference between the kind of populism Sanders is uh, evoking and using and the kind that Trump is. I, I think they're different enough that it's worth not categorizing the, the two um, in the same way. Which is why I think the proper analogy for Sanders is Ron Paul, because Ron Paul is also a Republican Party office holder um, who was on the margins of the party, very much a part of it, and who used his platform in the 2008 election and the 2012 one to bring into the party libertarian ideas and energize sort of a new generation of libertarian activists. And I see Sanders is doing basically the same thing for the social democratic left in the United States, which is, I think, roughly the size of the libertarian right. Uh, Hmm. Plus, they're both old. I'll just throw that in there. Yes, they're both old. (laughs) Um, You know, I will say say to our GabFest listeners that uh, for as much as Bernie Sanders is very exciting and he's drawing these very large crowds, the odds of him winning the primary, I still think, are slim to none. Um, If you just look at the uh, number of endorsements Sanders has received relative to um, his competitors, and, and as sort of a parenthetical, if you're trying to make a prediction as to who is going to win, endorsements from current office holders is like your best available metric. It, it tells you kind of exactly where a candidate is relative to the party, and primaries are nothing more than decisions by the party to choose a representative. Sanders has like none. Hillary Clinton has 310. Um, now, if, if that's more, that's, that's none. more, that's considerably more than none. Um, maybe all those people will decide that Hillary Clinton is a loser and they ought to endorse someone else. But in that world, that someone else probably isn't Bernie Sanders. It's probably another similar candidate, similarly mainstream candidate who gets into the race in response to Hillary's weakness. Yes. Thank you for that dose of realism. Um, I want to move on to Hillary and this video that Good Magazine put online this week. It's Hillary talking to an activist from Black Lives Matter. Actually, it starts out with her listening pretty patiently for an extended couple of minutes um, while this activist, whose name has floated out of my mind, is laying out his argument and really asking her what has changed in her heart. He's holding her responsible for the laws that passed in the 90s signed by Bill Clinton that are in part responsible for mass incarceration, especially of lots of black men. He's kind of asking her to respond um, from from her heart in this like emotional way and prove to him that something in her heart has changed. And when she finally starts talking, she kind of lectures him back. And I think she is making points political realist points in the way that you were saying, Jack, how is this movement going to translate into real change and real policy proposals that will improve 
the lives of black people. She invokes all the work she's done over years for children, some of it with Marion Wright Edelman, who started the Children's Defense Fund and is like a lion of the black civil rights movement, but of an older generation. And then there's this moment, which has been quoted a lot, where Hillary says, I don't believe you change hearts. I believe you change laws. You change allocation of resources. You change the way systems operate. Jamal, what did you make of this? Do you feel like she's a little tone deaf here, or is she... Is she being realistic in a way that the Black Lives Matter activist needs to hear? I, I think it's the latter. I think Hillary Clinton was completely right there. Um, I actually thought she was very engaging in the entire uh, exchange. And it's sort of it's the, it's the Hillary Clinton that makes you think, oh, she she could be pretty good at this politics thing. Um, mm hmm. I understand the the Black Lives Matters activists called for Hillary to you know demonstrate that her, that her heart has changed. Um, I think the activist's name is Julius Jones. Thank um, you. But tomorrow, every single person in the United States could have a perfectly racially egalitarian heart, and it would still be the case that prisons are disproportionately filled with African American men. Right. Sort of. But then wouldn't we fix the policy? I mean, if if people if white people really reckoned with America's racist history in a deep, serious way, if we had our truth and reconciliation extended moment, wouldn't that inevitably lead to policy changes? In some instances, it may. I think in some instances, it may not. The fact is that we're never going to we're not going to get there. That's not that's not going to happen. Um, and I think it's I think Clinton is right to say that it's much more realistic to think about what concretely can we do. And I happen to think that concrete policy change and in, in a change in political norms also can change hearts. And so, for example, the most recent example, right, is same sex marriage as same sex marriage kind of swept through the country and became and became legal people's animus or fear towards gay people declined. I think those two are very much related. Uh, as soon as you see that people who are different are not scary and are not a threat to you, uh, you and, and when law affirms that, then hearts change. Um, I, I, this, the, this notion that we have to change the hearts first, I think, is a recipe for leave, letting the wheels turn even longer. Mm. Right. I guess one thing I've been mulling over is the difference between the intellectual project of getting people to face up to history, right? So I've been thinking about this a lot in relation to Ta-Nehisi Coates' <clears throat> book, where there's all this, if you're following the coverage of that book, a lot of it is about history and the importance of history and really understanding history so that we know why there is a lot of poverty and suffering in black urban neighborhoods right now and that we don't just like blame it on the people who live there in a, in a kind of ahistorical and I would argue sort of reckless way or a way that um, isn't fair to them. That seems like a super important intellectual project to me. And But I agree with you, Jamel. It seems like when you're talking about politics, you are not going to get white America to that place. And so... Let's let's think about the kind of reverse engineering you were just suggesting where you have a policy change and people see that it works and then they buy into it. And I suppose that's one way to think about the whole smart on crime movement, that as you start to try to reduce sentences and we change other, other um, aspects of the criminal justice system that have put so many people, especially black men, in prison, as long as crime rates don't go up and people still feel relatively safe, then that could lead to other kinds of changes. Jack, what do you think about that way of framing it? There's a number of different sort of 
Black Lives Matter activists that have been interacting with these candidates. So the people who challenged Bernie originally are very different than Julius Julius Jones, Jones. right? Who was, I thought, could have used a little bit more Seattle in his... uh, presentation. He he talks about how it's an honor to be in this dialogue with you. That's the first thing he says to Hillary. There's a kind of like, Definitely. all of a sudden he's in the presence of real power, not Bernie Sanders, uh, although he wasn't the one at, at Bernie Sanders. And there's a lot of, you know, talk about him being, offering his respect for her and all this kind of stuff. So I thought he could have actually been a little bit, you know, I don't know, a Mixed little bit tougher. A little yeah. uh-huh. and, and then, and so I think, you know, his presentation is very different from uh, Seattle. And now I see that um, Bernie has uh, tweeted with uh, DeRay McKesson, and they're going to have a sit who's down. Who's another Black Lives Matter Who's another Matter Black leader. Lives Matter activist. And, but, and he is kind of more in the Hillary camp. I mean, he actually, when you, hear, when you hear him talk anyway from Ferguson, he often is linking these actions with things that have to change on a practical level. So I think, I think what we're watching really is a lot of, you know, it's a lot of Everybody's moving around trying to figure out this this issue, but I think um, I think you know Hillary's right in the sense that at some point we have to come down to practical politics and decide. She has that line in her her speech to Julius Jones that she says, you know, she mentions ban the box. The box is the box you check that says I'm an ex uh, prisoner. But you know, if you listen, if you go back to say Obama's speech in uh, at Emanuel AME in Charleston, right. Uh, everyone praises the literally the music and also the music of that speech. But in the middle of that speech, there's a little shout out to Hillaryism, hmm. which is that he has a, he stops at one point and he says, "But you know, I can stand here and say these things, but at some point we're going to have to turn to the political issue of gun control because that's what something. this is about, right?" And 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 he and he says, "I, I can't do that now." Because our politics won't allow us to have this political discussion about practical solutions to easy access to guns. And then he goes on, goes back to the the kind of, you know, um, the, the memorial aspect of his talk. But, you know, I think really in the end we need, we need candidates who can do both. Uh, I thought Hillary missed an opportunity really to show that she had some sense of of charisma and concern to speak to feelings as well as to sort of intellectual ban-the-box uh, agenda items. Right. She got a little authoritarian in right. that moment with right. Jones, I think. Yeah. Jamal, when you were talking about policy changes, the sort of, like, cha- facts on the ground that could change the minds of white Americans um, and address racism, did you have specific ideas in mind, or do you feel like there are a lot of different things that could happen and Black Lives Matter will eventually choose some policy proposals or other leaders will? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of different things that could happen with, with the Black Lives Matter concerns in particular with police violence. I think I do think smart on crime approaches and especially as, you know, if, if we get to a point where we're releasing not just nonviolent offenders, but we're releasing violent offenders a little earlier and we're working on ways to reintegrate them in the communities. I think if, if we can get to that point and people can see that those policies really do work, that you're not sacrificing, like you said, like you said earlier, you're not sacrificing safety for the sake of, um, of you know, doing some social justice in the world, that, that may begin to change attitudes. I think in other areas, um, most notably school integration, um, you see very much the kind of back in, in places where it worked or not where it worked, mm-hmm. but where it was mm-hmm. sustained. You see right. the kind of um, reverse engineering towards attitudes happen that when parents of different races become invested in the same school, the attitudes do really change. 
Yeah, no, I think that is a really good way to think about it. And I'm so glad you brought up letting people out of prison earlier who committed violent as well as nonviolent crimes, because if we're going to make a real dent in the prison population, we got to do that. There's a super interesting tool that I believe the Vera Institute, I'll I'll check, but um, I think the Vera Institute put up a week or two ago where you can actually like in your state or your um, local jurisdiction, maybe even you can plug in what kind of sentencing reform it would take to make X percent change mm. in your state's prison population. And in um, northeastern states and some other blue or purple states across the country, it's clear that actually those some states are not imprisoning tons of nonviolent drug offenders. So that notion that like, oh, if we just let the people who sold a few, um, you know, bags of weed out of prison, we'll take care of this. It's really not true. Um, anyway, so I'm glad that you brought that up. <laughs> All right, before we get to our third topic, I have another announcement. It is about a Slate Academy symposium that Slate is doing in collaboration with George Washington University. The symposium is on the topic, How Do We Get Americans to Talk Honestly About Slavery? Extremely related to our last segment. The event is taking place on September 17th at 7 p.m. at George Washington University's Jack Morton Auditorium. And um, starring... At this event, we'll be starring Jamel Bowie, a couple of museum (laughs) curators from the Smithsonian, some professors, and LeVar Burton. Jamel, how do you feel about sharing the stage with LeVar Burton? I am not sure that I won't completely flip out at uh, meeting LeVar Burton. Between Star Trek, can you Trek, tell our listeners who Lavar Burton is, in case any of them are on the planet Mars? Yes, in case any of you are animals, uh, Lavar Burton is. <laughs> Lavar Burton starred in Roots. Um, he starred in. He was one of the stars in Star Trek: Next Generation. Uh, he had a children's show called Reading Rainbow, and he's generally um, a sort of at this. I think at this stage in his career, he does a lot of work around education and around access. Awesome. So this sounds like a super um, fun event. Again, it's on September 17th at GW. You can go to slate.com slash live for more information or to buy your tickets, which I'm sure are going fast. Our third topic this week is Amazon, a place we have learned from the New York Times of 80-hour work weeks, a place of getting emails from your boss or someone else after midnight, and then you'll get a text asking you why you haven't answered if you don't hop to it. It also is a place of um, some really alarming stories about people who had life-threatening illnesses or personal tragedies and were kind of, instead of getting sympathy from the company, they were shoved into this category of being under performance review, which essentially means you're in trouble for not getting, for not giving enough priority to your work. And then the other anecdote in this story that just killed me was the anonymous tool Amazon provides employees for giving feedback about their coworkers, which just sounds like a nightmare of I, of workplace bullying or like that's it's the backstabbing the app, backstabbing <laughs> app in which like people gang up on you and they undermine you and maybe they're right, but you don't even know they're saying it because it's all anonymous and you you can't stand up for yourself in that context. Amazon has been a famously secretive place to work. They make, like, practically everybody sign a non-disclosure agreement. And so the really eye-opening thing about this story in The Times, which was reported by Jody Cantor and David Streitfeld, is that they interviewed more than 100 current and former Amazon employees to provide this picture. And uh, it, you know, really just, like, yeah, it's... um, 
it was catnip to me, this story, partly because it's like all my fears about the modern workplace and partly because I was trying to, in some way, think, okay, well, is this necessary to the fact that as a consumer, it's amazing to me how quickly and efficiently Amazon operates. Like, is this how we get to the internet marketplace of the future? Um, Jamel, what was your, your feeling as you read through this? My feeling was these people need a union. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, organizing. You know, they're white collar workers, though. We don't usually think of them as unionizing. We we yet. don't, but they're still. I mean, in my mind, this story was a, a reminder that even white collar workers are still fundamentally workers, and that unless they do something to increase their bargaining power as a collective, they're kind of at the mercy of this kind of thing. And worse, these sorts of things produce this produce a workplace culture where other people see them as just the way you do things or or right. you know we we wouldn't be Amazon if we didn't do things like this. Or if you wanted to work somewhere easier, then you know, leave Amazon. But the idea that you should have to sacrifice basically your life to this company um, for for what? Because so you can get a pat on the head from your manager is ridiculous. Well, you also get a lot of money, right? You also I mean, get a lot of money. I mean, why isn't this just capitalism, Jack? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say I, I thought the story started a little slow. I, you didn't get to the good stuff until you uh, hit the jump. But and 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 as a result, I think people might have missed what's really different about this story as opposed to all the other stories you've read, which is, uh, the, I guess the earlier ones always had that image of the ambulance sitting outside the warehouse to take fainting and dying workers to the hospital because to revive the where, them. Because the Amazon warehouse was but, like 100 degrees. Right. And people were literally And working 18 hours a day and yes. all this stuff, kind of thing. That's the blue collar. Right. That's the blue collar uh, torment. Which I still find worse, I No, no. It's, uh, oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. But this, yeah, but this is different, right? This is like, we're going to eat at your privacy. You know, you have to take our phone calls and our texts 24 hours a day. You're on vacation? Tough. You know, your child's in the hospital? Too bad. Um, you know, you have to live this kind of Amazonian life. And, and you know, Bezos sort of believes in the, all of these sort of CEOs have their, quote, you know, their managerial theory. And his is this kind of Darwinian process. He sets up these, uh, the, like the the backstabbing app. Is, and they have cull. They literally call their They call workforce. their workers. Yeah. And, and they claim that, so of course, this is in the belief that, you know, this productivity is this sort of simple linear metric. And if you just get all of the workers who can produce the most quality, you know, work per hour, that you'll, you'll wind up uh, with this great company. But, you know, I love these chestnuts that show up in like the Wall Street Journal about once a year where they do a profile of like Costco or uh, what's the other one? Uh, Market Basket. Do you the remember that? The good employer. Yeah, the good mean, employer. Right? right. Which also, and, and what they always find amazing is that these companies make a lot of money. Right. Because they retain people. Right. There's they, the kinder, gentler model. Exactly. Right? It's not even, well, I mean, it, it's kinder, gentler, but in the sense that like, in both of these companies, one of the things you always read in the stories is that there's a clear path to advancement and really making good money. Okay, so it's there's never it's not fuzzy, it's not murky as to how you get ahead, right? Um, and then and, people work toward that goal, and, and people work towards that goal, right? Um, I mean, a, a, 
a, someone who bags groceries at Costco can become, you know, a six-figure manager in 10 years. That can happen, you know. Um, and there's always this um, – the, the, the CEO is always quoted as saying, like, you know, we hardly have an HR department. You know, we don't fire people all the time. So we're saving all that money. And, and the Wall Street, you know, journal is always mystified by the fact that these companies actually do well. Um, so I, I don't know. To, to me, there's like th- – there are different models. But Bezos and these kinds of CEOs think that the only way – to make money is to create these sort of crushing conditions and reinvent kind of 18th century sort of mill economy tactics where you live in the village, you know, dine off of their chits and have to shop at their, you know, specific <laughs> store. Company store. And you, you turn into an Amazon script. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and just to explain the title I chose for this episode, the ideal worker, according to some of the Amazon folks, is called an Amabot. And if you just go way too far, you become an amhole yeah. in all of this. <laughs> so, Jamel, um, at one point, Jeff Bezos is uh, the view is attributed to him in the story that he thinks harmony is often overvalued in the workplace. I should pause and say that Bezos's response to the story was to say that it portrayed an Amazon that he found unrecognizable. He said and it wasn't true. He wasn't true. He can't believe this. And if anyone is experiencing any of this, they should come tell him personally. Oh, sure. I really wonder yeah, how many kid. people are taking him up on that. <laughs> anyway, let's let's just play this out though. So Bezos says. That harmony can stifle honest critique and encourage p- polite praise for flawed ideas. Isn't he right about that, Jamel? Not that that would ever happen in Slate, but somewhere <laughs> in some workplace, could you imagine that being the case? I mean, I can imagine that being the case, but I think it's also entirely possible to build collaborative workplaces where you have – or. So harmony, the word harmony is doing a lot of work there, right? Because harmony suggests a kind of kumbaya-ness about everything. But harmony, you know, you you can have honest and vigorous critique without also the kind of backstabbing and hostility that you seem to see in this Amazon story. The two two things aren't – they they don't necessarily need to go together. And so in my mind, you could have a harmonious workplace – um, where people are decent to each other, but they're also because they're decent to each other and because they view each other as like humans worth respecting and not simply means to some like, you know, end of advancement. They're also intru- they also want to critique and they want to find the best possible solution to something. Do you think that's possible at huge companies? I mean, maybe it is because you break them into units, but I wonder if there's something about the huge corporation that the institutional politics somehow take over in a way that messes with your thesis. Though I like your thesis, person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, that, I mean, I, I have no experience with large companies, but I have to imagine that there there is something just about being a, a massive super corporation that, that does that. But I also wouldn't discount the extent to which the conditions you see in a, in a white-collar workplace like Amazon are, are a function of the ideologies of the leaders, that the, the, these are people who just believe life is cutthroat market competition and they they run their companies accordingly. If you don't think that, if you think that, you know, market competition doesn't necessarily require um, this kind of heartlessness, then you, you're, you're going to try to run a different company. You're going to organize your, co- your company differently. What do you guys think about the role that data collection was playing in this story? And in some other things um, I read this week, this idea that more and more workplaces are going to be tracking every single thing employees do during the day and then discovering that employees are like, surfing online or doing whatever they're doing some of the time because none of us I, or I will speak for myself. I <laughs> do not concentrate for many hours in a row without deviating from whatever 
perch I am supposed to be taking at my desk. I just find that so hard, and I think many other people do as well. Is this, are companies going to use data in a smart way in which they're going to catch us at the things that, like, truly we shouldn't be doing? Because, you know, look, like, certainly there is, particularly in the month of August, plenty of um, lackadaisical work behavior out there in the world. Or is this, like, just totally totalitarian and alarming in a way of, uh, uh, is the risk here just of cutting off the kind of creativity and just taking of breaks that allows human beings to function. Jack, what do you think? Well, I kind of loaded that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, I, I go back to my 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 line about uh, this this idea that productivity is some linear measure, and we're just going to winnow it all down to the Amazon the Amabots who will be these high functioning you know uh, workers. But look, all the losers from uh, Amazon, where do they wind up? Twitter. Facebook, Uber. Netflix, you know, they're not exactly going to loser corporations, right? Um, so I, I just think, I think Bezos's idea that, that, that workers have this kind of one-dimensional characteristic and that he can, he can sort the box and, you know, all the losers will fall out is, I, is ridiculous. Right. And yet, surely there are plenty of jobs in the world where you really are just supposed to, like, File your data or mm-hmm. enter what I don't know. It I don't. I, some ways I feel a little bit like as journalists. Um, I mean, Jack, you're a freelancer, but also even for Jamal and me, who are Jamal and I, who are both on staff, like we can justify in a kind of self-serving way, like, oh, don't mess with us in our creative process. Like, maybe I need to, you know, go stare out the window for two hours in order to write a really good lead. Or in my case, I struggle more with the conclusions and kickers. If you're, if you have a more routine job, why shouldn't your employer just like measure how productive you're being and treat you like a widget in some way? Well, look, I mean, go, look at Boston, uh, uh, the market basket case, right, where uh, a kind of Bezos character took over the company and insisted that they were going to all become Amabots, right? The whole company revolted and they said, we will shut the company down. And they just, the po- profits started to plummet and the shareholders freaked out and brought the old CEO back. It was the, one of the most amazing business stories of last year, right? And I think in some ways, these companies attract the kind of workers who dig that kind of masochism. People who survive at, at Amazon, they probably love it that the Times has this story. Yeah, I'm an Amabot. I made it through the hazing ritual. You I know, think you're I'm right. king of the hill. Right. right? Totally. No, yeah. I mean, I, that I think is so why it's this so mystifying to me. I just can't imagine wanting to work that hard. It sounds really <laughs> dreadful. And I think other people go to Costco and, and these other companies, and there are many of those, right, that just have different ways of creating productivity. Look, I, I remember I heard some manager type say years ago that if you put a parrot in a cage, you know, you can teach him, like, I'll make up the numbers, 20 words. But if you put two parrots in a cage, they learn 70 words. And I'm sure if you took a needle and tormented them, they'd wor- learn 150 words. Or maybe but- they'd learn fewer words because they'd be really uncomfortable and just distracted um i'm not sure jamel what did you um what did you think about this idea of feedback about coworkers? i mean the anonymous part was creepy but do you think that we provide enough opportunities in the modern workplace for people to get co- feedback from the coworkers around them as opposed to their supervisors i i don't think we do but i i think that kind of feedback again the kind of feedback you get and the kind of feedback regime you design depends a lot on the kind of workplace you want. So if you want a collaborative workplace, you can. Fo- I think you can foster the conditions for sort of group collaborative 
uh, feedback that is focused on improving everyone and not trying to, like, you know, game the system to get ahead. And tear each other down. And tear each other down. I mean, again, I think, you know, for a place like Amazon, um, for a place like Amazon where the the goal really does seem to be to create this hyper-competitive Darwinian company, you know, if I were if I were unhappy there, I'd, I'd try to unionize. and Not just leave, but sort of, like, um, take steps to affirmatively show my bosses that, like, I am not a widget. Um, and I do not think that... It is inevitable that in a market society, our companies have to treat people um, like they are just widgets. Uh, All right, he, we are he, all siding with love over he, here. I have one. Here's where I'm <laughs> sounding can, like, can a, throw, like a Marxist yeah. here, but I'm not. I'm just, you know, yeah. believing yeah, human I would flourishing. Also add, I'd also add to that that if you read that, if you read carefully about the the coworker sabotage uh, winnowing thing, the reality was that it's not clear that it actually worked, right? Right, because everyone everyone figured out ways to uh, social engineer the system to their own benefit, even if they were mediocre or not A plus in Amazon's view. Right, right? It was just you might like band together to with manage. a couple of other workers from your box and screw one guy to get him out, and then y'all could get ahead. Right, and the more so, time you're spending on on those kinds of institutional politics, right. the less you're actually working. Right. I have one last question about this. This story has gotten gazillion comments. I think it's like the most commented on story in the New York Times. Mm. There were over 6,600 when I checked um, <laughs> earlier this week. And the most favorited or liked or whatever it is comment was by Katie in Georgia, who is pledging to boycott Amazon. She said, I cannot support a company that so purposely creates a negative environment for its employees. Is this story going to hurt Amazon? Are people really, are the consumers of the world who are mostly, in my view, very well served by this company, are we really going to have pause enough that Amazon is going to see a dent in its users? Along with unionizing, that seems like a pretty important lever here. No, I mean, you know. No. No. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I agree, too. I don't think we're pulling that lever, even if we should. I mean, there's a slight possibility because it's white collar. Uh, workers, in other words, the New York Times own readership largely. So maybe there's some chance it would happen there. But wait a minute, didn't somebody at Slate had a piece about wanting to boycott Amazon and didn't two years ago in this? I, the this comes story. up kind of regularly. Yeah. This like we're addicted to Amazon. Right. Well, and also in the whole fight over publishing with Hachette, mm-hmm. the publishing right. company that was trying to get Amazon to give it a different deal for selling, um, I think, ebooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also feel like a failed member every time of this idea of boycotting Amazon. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know how guilty do we have to feel about this. I yield to the other speakers. <laughs> so so this is one of those things where if you want to feel guilty, I think that's great. And if you want to boycott, I think that's great. I think that for thinking in terms of like broad solutions to this general type of problem, feeling guilty is sort of useless. Um, you need to you need to focus on ways to uh, create more balance in the in the power between workers and employers. Um which takes us back to unionizing. Which takes us back to unionizing. Unions, unions are not perfect. Uh, they are very flawed, but they are a necessary institution. And I'm going to uh, stop it before the listeners th- really do think I'm a Marxist, which I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are different. There are different shades here. All right, um, that brings us, I think, to cocktail chatter. 
Jamel, what would you like, what will you be talking about over, let's see, what drink would be a good drink for you over mint juleps this weekend? That doesn't seem that plausible, but I threw it in there anyway. <laughs> I do have copper cups at home, so maybe. Um, Is that what you drink mint juleps in? I didn't know that. Uh, I think tan. I, I think tan. Silver. Silver, yeah, silver. Oh, okay. Silver. Um, but I have okay. copper cups from Moscow, Moscow Mules, so, you know, why not? Cool. Well, uh, over my mint julep, I would be uh, discussing the fact that I, for the past year, have been very into eating uh, heirloom beans. Um, beans, as in, you know, like black beans, pinto beans, whatever. But there are many different varieties of beans, more than you can possibly imagine. Um, and there's a company uh, called Rancho Gordo out in California that grows heirloom beans and sells them. They're a little pricey. Uh, but uh, I will I will say as someone who cooks a lot and who cooks a lot of vegetarian stuff and who uses them quite a bit, I have been surprised at how uh, much it has improved my cooking um, with beans using these these heirloom varieties. Uh, my favorite at the moment mm-hmm. is called a Mayakoba bean, which is basically like a white pinto bean, um, mm. and it's it's really great. It's really delicious. I wrote okay. that down because you are the second person this month who has told me to go order some beans from Rancho Gordo. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, Jamel. So, <laughs> but here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. So, uh, are you cooking them on the stovetop, or do you have you have you discovered the pressure cooker? I, I use a pressure cooker. Yeah, me Wait, too. Wait for beans. Oh yes, yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. It, yeah, can I just? Uh, what yes. happens? Go ahead, Jamel. You can say Jamel, it. Jamel, it, it, it cuts your cooking time dramatically. It, it's oh, this is dried. So this mm-hmm. is like you don't soak them beforehand. You just cook them in the pressure cooker. Okay, this is controversial. What's what's your view, Jamel? I I like I soak I soak beforehand just because I remember to. It's like part of my routine, and it uh-huh. does it cuts it cuts the cooking time even quicker. And so, like a, a cranberry bean, for for instance, mm-hmm. soaked yeah. may take like ten minutes in the pressure cooker. Um, right, dried. It's probably what like twenty five minutes. Yeah, about so twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah, not meaningfully <laughs> so, different. Right. Yeah. All right, and I- the other thing is, this, if you soak them, they don't crack in half and become little, you know, bits of beans. That's so right. that's that's a key thing. But here's the other thing I would uh, offer uh, uh, the listeners. So if you make it in the pressure cooker, you usually put in like a little bit of onion and a bay leaf and some other stuff in there. You can kind of mix it up, some rosemary, or whatever, and then your beans. Uh, they have these. You can just eat the beans right out of the pot. They're right. so good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And this is the 23 minutes in the pressure cooker? Right? Yeah. I mean, depending on the size of the bean. You know, if you get into these big limas or, you know, the smaller, yeah, like like the cranberry is a normal sort of size bean, you can, you know, adjust it, you know, one way or the other. But let me just say, don't throw out that bean liquor. Oh, that bean liquor right. is fantastic. It's gold. Yes. yes. And what so do you do with you, that? I make rice with it or whatever, but it's extremely flavorful. You can do all kinds of things with it, but I, I always reserve it and keep it around. Yeah. Wow, this has turned into the cooking okay. gap fest, and I am so glad. <laughs> yes. Jack, what else will you be talking about this weekend? Okay, uh, just to, uh, so I have recently seen nothing but bad movies. I don't know why, and I mean just piss poor Even movies. Even on Netflix. Yeah, not, not great bad movies, just everything has been bad. And so my, uh, my complaint, uh, or what I will be talking about this weekend, is The Man from Uncle. Guy Ritchie, who made a great movie called Snatch with Brad Pitt and some other fantastic uh, people. But um, this – so you remember The Man from Uncle is the TV show that kind of was derivative of James Bond, right? And the idea was that there would be this Russian and this American and they would band together and go solve the world's problems. But they were supposed to be super cool, well-dressed, very handsome, uh, you know, sort of uh, slightly snarky spies, right? And 
And and in this movie, if you go to see it, you can see that like there's actually a pretty good script. They're okay actors, right? They're pretty good. The plot seems to hum right along, but something is missing. And the whole movie to me just sort of collapses and is boring. I don't, I don't know why, but I, I think that somehow Richie managed to distill the derivativeness of the original Man from Uncle and then translate it to the big screen. Huh. All right. And if you, listener, have a theory about what is missing from this movie that you would like to enlighten us with, please write in and tell us. I am reading a really good book. That's my chatter for this week. I just started it. It's called Loving Day by Matt Johnson. He is such a good writer, such a funny writer. And it's a book set in Germantown, the neighborhood in Philadelphia that I grew up in, although not exactly where this book takes place. The conceit for this book is that the narrator's father has just died and left this hulking mansion to his son in a terrible condition in a dangerous part of Philadelphia and Germantown, and the son has to figure out what to do with this house. Um, yeah, I haven't finished it, but so far it's terrific. Loving Day by Matt Johnson. All right, I think we have reached the end of the show. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash gabfest. You can email us at gabfest at slate.com or comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest, or follow us on Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Tarek Barrett, who is sick this week and heroically did research for us anyway. Tarek, thank you, and I really hope you're feeling better. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Jack Hitt and Jamel Bowie, I'm Emily Bazlon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.